Or will you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Matthew? Matthew chapter 26. We'll begin our reading in verse 47 today and read through verse 56. Would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired and errant and infallible word? This is the word of God. Let's give it our full attention. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servants of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. Being the man of exquisite cultural sensibilities that I am, um, I read broadly. You'll find in my library the great works. Uh, You'll find the Puritans. You'll find Gary Larson's comic illustrations from the far side. One of my favorite of these is without a doubt the comic illustration entitled The Midvale School for the Gifted. If you haven't seen it, the illustration pictures a gifted young man laboring with all of his might to push open a door that says pull. And it's become one of those incredibly popular illustrations, not only for its obvious comical value, but I think because there's something in it that we all actually resonate with. From one time or another, we've all been that kid, making a fool of ourselves for failing to follow the simplest instructions, learning lessons in futility as we struggle against the obvious way that something has been designed. And that's not just an intellectual problem. Uh, That's also a moral problem, even a fallen problem. 
as human beings made in the image of God but fallen, we strive against God's good order of things. It's not just instructions on doors. Uh, It is the instructions of God's word. Where God says, pull, and there we are, pushing with all of our might. Kicking against the goads. uh, Trying to outthink God. Part of the way that God sanctifies us is by teaching us that we cannot outthink him. That we must submit to him. Uh, teaching us that what Isaiah says is true, that my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And yet when we look through the Bible, we see example after example of God's people pushing when God says pull. Sometimes in a well-meaning way, Right, Pastor Prophet recently reminded us of an example of Abraham and Sarah as he's been going through Galatians. God promised to give them a child, and that through this child would come the promised seed. Uh, but Abraham and Sarah were old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing, and they just could not understand how it was that this promise could be fulfilled. And so rather than trust in God's word, they decide to take matters into their own hands and to help God out with the fulfillment of that promise. And so you remember the disastrous choice that they make as Sarah gives her maidservant to Abraham to give him offspring. This does not please God. Uh, God has promised to do this for them. And so they attempt to bring it about through their flesh, and he says, no, in Isaac shall your seed be. And so he gives them a sign in their flesh. He gives them the sign of circumcision to be a constant reminder to them that you will not bring about the promise according to your flesh. Both Abraham and all of his male descendants after would bear this sign in their flesh that they would not bring about the promise by their own means. God was going to accomplish it for them. And that's just one example among many. Uh, Probably other examples come into your mind, but um, we have an example of that sort of thing here in this passage today. As Peter, who is believing that he is helping Christ is unwittingly becoming a hindrance to his plan and purposes. Uh, In his well-meant effort to defend Jesus and to protect him from this mob of men who are coming for him, he resorts to violence. And he's actually getting in the way of the exact thing that Jesus has come to do. In trying to help, he becomes a hindrance. He is pushing with all of his might to advance the kingdom of Christ in a way that it will not be advanced. It will not be advanced by force. It will be advanced by the pull of the message of the gospel. And that message stands in contrast uh, to the violent way in which the kingdoms of this world advance. If my kingdom were of this world, Jesus says, my servants would have been fighting 
They would fight that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. That is a lesson that Peter must learn. It's a lesson that we must learn, lest we try to push the kingdom of Christ forward and unwittingly bring reproach on the very king whose way is the way of the cross. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. We would have never thought the cross. And yet that is God's way. And so as we look at this passage today, we'll consider it under the following points. We're first going to look at this violent sign as Judas in this incredibly treacherous act of disloyalty takes what is a symbol of friendship and affection and turns it into a sign of violence and betrayal. Secondly, we're going to look at this violent strike as Peter, in this reckless act of loyalty, rises in violence to defend a master who neither wants nor needs his defending. And then finally, we'll consider a nonviolent submission as Jesus, whose kingdom will not be advanced by violence, in submission to his Father, submits himself to violent hands. A violent sign, a violent strike, and a nonviolent submission. The whole passage is just filled with violence. And though that violence begins here in Gethsemane, it will continue and only escalate until beaten and bloodied, Jesus will be nailed to the cross at Golgotha. But the violence is pulsing through the passage. An angry mob comes with torches in hand. Uh, They are carrying swords and clubs to seize Jesus and to take him by force. In fact, the, the word sword is used six times in just the space of a few verses here. First in the hands of the crowds and then in the hands of Peter as he violently strikes at the servant of the high priest bloodying his face and slicing off his ear. But of all the violent things done in the passage, the most violent thing that is done is not done with a sword, is it? It's done with a kiss. Verse 47 begins, While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, And with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them this sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. You remember it's late at night. The Passover meal begins at sunset. So now it's quite late. They've already been to the Garden of Gethsemane. They've prayed for over an hour. And now Jesus rises and he tells his disciples, my betrayer is at hand. And while he is still speaking, the betrayer comes. Uh, They come with torches. Remember, they do not know who Jesus is. Uh, They are from Jerusalem. Jesus and his disciples are from Galilee. They know of him, but they might have seen him once or twice in the temple courts. 
And so they need someone to give them a sign. And that sign that Judas chooses is this cultural sign of friendship and affection. You would kiss uh, your companion on the cheek. And he takes this sign of friendship and he turns it into a sign of violence. And Matthew is not going to let us forget who Judas is, that he's one of the twelve. That he is one of Jesus' close companions, someone who has been with him throughout the entirety of his public ministry. Just let that sink in. That Judas was there at his first miracle when he turned water into wine. Judas was there when he fed the 5,000. Judas was there when he spoke to the sea and to the wind and to the waves and calmed them. Judas was there when he multiplied the loaves. Judas was there when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Judas was there when he shared the Passover meal and instituted the supper. Judas is not just some guy. Judas is a friend, a companion. He's a bro. Right? The psalmist talks about how if, if this was a foe that had done this to me, I could take that. But you, my good friend, and yet he's not just a friend, is he? He's also a fraud. He's a betrayer. So much so that now the name of Judas has become synonymous with treachery and betrayal. Even those who don't know hardly anything about the Bible know what it means to be a Judas. You ever notice how you don't meet a lot of Judases? No one chooses to name their kids Jezebel or Judas. It's too bad. It's a fantastic name. It means praise. And yet, these lips that should be used for praise are used to betray. It's a violence of a sort that brings a pain that's deeper than physical pain. A broken heart takes longer to heal than a broken bone. And notice, notice the way that Judas does it. The psalmist says, your speech is smooth. Judas comes up and he greets Jesus and he says, greetings, Rabbi. I made the point last week that while all of the other disciples were examining their hearts at the Lord's Supper, they're all asking the question, is it I, Lord? One after another, is it I, Lord? Except Judas. What does Judas say? You remember. He says, is it I, Rabbi? He chooses this other term, the term that throughout the Bible, the critics of Christ often use as they come to trap Jesus. Because the term rabbi is, is an official title. It means teacher. It honors the office without necessarily honoring the man. Just like you might refer to the president, and you might not like the president, but you might still honor his office. It honors the office. It doesn't say whether he's a good teacher or a bad teacher or even your teacher. Just that he's a teacher. Contrast that with the term that Jesus uses for Judas. 
Friend, do what you came to do. If this was you, what might you choose to call someone? A lot of things came to my mind. Maybe traitor. Maybe fool. Snake. Maybe something worse. But Jesus says friend. It's an interesting term. Sometimes it can mean simply companion. Sometimes it can mean a close friend. Sometimes it can be used sarcastically. I think Jesus is just defaulting to the relationship that they've had. But I do think there's something more that's going on here. Do you remember what Jesus called Peter when Peter became a stumbling block to him? Jesus did not shy away from using a more pejorative term, did he? When Peter said, this is never going to happen to you, you won't go to the cross, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, for you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. But here he doesn't call Judas Satan. He calls him friend. And I think it's because though Judas doesn't realize it, Judas is actually furthering his mission toward the cross. However satanic his intentions may be, he is a friend because he is leading him to the accomplishment of his father's will. Pascal put it like this. He says, Jesus disregards the enmity of Judas and sees in him only God's will, which he loves. And he loves it so much that he calls him friend. I think there's a deep irony here. Judas, in this act of mischievous disloyalty, unwittingly is becoming a friend of Jesus' mission. While Peter, in an act of misguided loyalty unwittingly becomes a hindrance. The one is loyal. The one is disloyal. But in the plan and purpose of God, the disloyal one is actually furthering God's purposes, and the one who is loyal is actually getting in the way. And I think that that brings us nicely to our next point here today, this violent strike of Peter. But before we unpack this, I just want you to take a moment to reflect on how many times leading up to this, Jesus has told his disciples that he must go to the cross. It begins all the way back in chapter 16. We're now in chapter 26. All the way back in chapter 16, where Peter first made his great confession that Jesus was the Christ. Uh, From that time on, the Bible says, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised. In fact, it was those words, Jesus telling his disciples these things, that he's going to Jerusalem to be crucified, 
That is the impetus for Peter's pulling him aside and rebuking him. This is never going to happen to you. Jesus said, oh yes, it will. He persisted. And he continues to persist. He says it again in chapter 17. And then again in chapter 20. And then he says it in multiple ways through multiple parables in chapter 21 and 22. And then he says it again in chapter 23. And then finally here at the beginning of chapter 26, he says it again. You know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. The sign is clear, right? It says pull. And yet, here's Peter pushing with all his might. The sign says suffering. Peter says glory. And he's ready to go out in a blaze of glory. He's ready to die for Jesus. He's ready to defend Jesus with his life. And so we read that, behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, Matthew obviously doesn't actually tell us that it was Peter, but John does. Uh, John tells us that this was Peter who did this. Why did Peter cut off his ear? When I was a kid, I used to like, think about this. Why did he cut off his ear? That's a strange thing to do. Was he aiming for the ear? I don't think so. Peter was no expert swordsman. (laughs) Peter was a fisherman. Peter wanted to cleave this guy in half. Peter was swinging for his head. He was attempting to kill this man. He was just a bad shot. He missed. Matthew also doesn't tell us about what Jesus did immediately following this. Luke tells us that Jesus immediately touched the man's ear and healed him. It's a good thing for Peter, both that he missed and that Jesus was there to heal the man. Otherwise, there might have been four people crucified on Golgotha. But there's something very comforting to me, at least, that Jesus' last earthly miracle before his, his death is actually to reverse and to undo the damage of one of his disciples. I, I take some hope in that, that, that God can take my reckless and overzealous efforts and still turn them around and make them resound to his glory. But Matthew, notice, he doesn't say anything about the miracle. He he doesn't say anything about it being Peter. And there's different reasons that people suggest. Matthew's a very early gospel. John's a very late gospel. Uh, This would have been in circulation while Peter was still alive. And so there might have been some threat to Peter, actually, Uh, if there was a record that he he had done this. But whatever, Matthew doesn't comment on it. Instead, he focuses all of our attention upon what Jesus says. And listen to what Jesus says. He says, put your sword back in its place, 
For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Now in saying this, Jesus is not saying that the sword has no place. There is a place for the sword. There is a God-given place for the sword. Jesus affirms that God has given the sword for lawful purposes. He's established the civil government as his servant to carry out his wrath on evildoers. You can see that in Romans 13. Uh, The civil government is not meant to be a terror to good conduct, but to evil conduct. And the Bible teaches very clearly that Christians can lawfully and honorably serve in this capacity as civil servants and military and law enforcement. Jesus, it seems, even sees a place for the sword in lawful self-defense. He tells his disciples in Luke, let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. And they say, we have two swords. He says, it's enough. (laughs) So, I just want to make it clear that This is not a passage that should be taken out of its context to argue that Jesus was a pacifist or to argue for gun control or to do something like that. It's not the point. Jesus is not saying that the sword has no place. He's telling Peter, this is not the place for the sword. The sword has a place. But this is not the place. The sword is not to be used in defense of God or of his Messiah. The kingdom of God is not going to be advanced by violence. The kingdom of God is not like the kingdoms of the world. Uh, Klein puts it this way, Every attempt to defend Jesus' mission by force is already a failure, no matter how successful it may look. Crusades, inquisitions... Every sort of quest to defend or advance the kingdom by physical force are all destined to receive his rebuke. His disciples are to carry the cross. It will not be by the power of the sword that the kingdom of Christ will spread throughout the world. It will be through the message of the cross. You cannot make conversions by the tip of the sword. How would you know if it was a real conversion? A sword cannot change hearts. Well, only the sword of the Spirit can change hearts. Rather, all who take the sword will perish by the sword. It's not entirely clear what that means. Is that, is that just a, a way of saying that violence is only going to breed more violence? Or does Jesus actually have in mind those crowds who are coming to him with swords and clubs in their hands? As he's already predicted the fall of Jerusalem and and the sword that will be brought by Rome against these who come bearing the sword. But whatever it is, Jesus simply does not need defending, does he? Yes, it's true that he appears weak and powerless, But things are not as they appear. Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? You know, one of God's titles is that he is the Lord of hosts. 
Yahweh Sabaoth. Right? We sing this in A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Lord Sabaoth his name. From age to age the same. And he will win the battle. Uh, That title, Lord of Hosts, hosts refers to armies. Right? The armies of heaven. Angelic armies. And if Jesus wanted, he could immediately appeal to his father to rally the troops and to send more than 12 legions of angels. A legion is kind of lost on us, but it's, it's actually a, a technical term. A Roman legion was a company of 6,000 men. So do the math in your head real quick. Right? Six times 12, 72,000 angels. Now, let your mind roll back in redemptive history a little bit, uh, back to like Second Kings, where a single angel kills 185,000 Assyrians in a single night. Or roll back further to the Passover, where a single angel goes throughout the land of Egypt and kills all of the firstborn males in a single night. I think 72,000 angels would probably be sufficient for this cohort with clubs and swords. Jesus is exaggerating to make the point. I'm not defenseless. I'm not helpless. I don't need your sword. I could appeal to my Father and He would send angels. But if I did that, how would the Scriptures be fulfilled? And so Peter's reckless zeal is not a help at all. It's actually a hindrance to the Scriptures being fulfilled. He's getting in the way of Jesus going to the cross. Peter's sword is not advancing the cause. He is unwittingly opposing it. But Jesus will not be opposed. Jesus is not going to be hindered. Jesus is going to the cross. He is going to do the will of his Father. His purpose for Jesus is that he should die. And Jesus is not going to be hindered for two reasons. I think they're pretty clear. The first reason, as we have just heard him pray, is that he's come to do the will of the Father. Not my will, but thy will be done. He has resolved to drink this bitter cup because the Lord has put it into his hand. This is his mission. But the second reason he will not be hindered is because poor Peter's life depends upon it. (laughs) Because the disciples' lives depend upon it. The disciples who were present that evening and the disciples who are present in these pews this morning, all of our lives depend upon Jesus going to the cross. And so he will not be hindered. He sets his face like a flint for the cross. He will not be moved. And that brings us to our final point then. We've considered this violent sign and the violent strike. Consider Jesus' nonviolent submission. That at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. 
But all of this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. The passage ends with a question for the crowds. Have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Unfortunately, I I think this is a place where the ESV translation just picks the wrong word. Um, It's true that the principal word that might be used to translate this is robber. But it's, it's a word that can also, in certain contexts, mean an insurrectionist. Uh, or a revolutionary. It's the word that is going to be used of Barabbas, right? Whose life is exchanged with Jesus's. It can even, in some contexts, mean a terrorist. Not, not like we think of them today, but that's the, that's the kind of idea behind it. And when you read the passage, what are they concerned about here? They're not concerned that Jesus has been breaking into houses at night. They're not concerned that he's a robber. They're concerned that he might be starting to to try to begin an insurrection. What they're concerned about is that he might be leading a revolt. They're concerned that he might be leading his disciples in a violent uprising like so many other messianic pretenders before him. After all, isn't this the man uh, who claimed to be the Messiah? who welcomed the crowds as they hailed his riding into Jerusalem. Hosanna to the son of David. You're David's son? Isn't this the man who in a rage was overturning the temple, uh, the tables in the temple? Isn't this the man who who was debating with the religious leaders in the temple precincts? Isn't this the man who would threaten that not one stone of the temple would be left standing upon another? but that it would all be thrown down. They're worried about him thinking he'll do that. They're worried about an insurrectionist and the the very fact that they come out against him armed to the hilt with swords and clubs only proves that they have taken him for another messianic pretender, an aspiring, self-aggrandizing revolutionary but that is not who Jesus is. And Jesus' response here proves that he is not what they suppose. Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all of this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Every day for the past week, right? We've seen it. Jesus has been there in the temple courts. He has been teaching God's people. He's been teaching them about the kingdom of God. Uh, He has been answering question after question. He's been telling parables. He's been there and no one once came to seize him. But now that Judas has gotten into the fray, now that his time is at hand, they come in the cover of night. And their coming, Jesus says, is expressly so that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. By the way, how did Jesus know that this was the will of God for his life? How did he know that as the Messiah, he was going to give his life as a ransom for many? 
however we parse out the Christological difficulties between what he knows according to his human nature and what he knows according to his divine nature, we can at least say this without doubt, that Jesus knew this was God's will for him because he'd read God's word. Because he had the scriptures to tell him and to direct him what the Messiah would do. Right? This is what he will explain to the disciples after the resurrection on the road to Emmaus, how all the law and the prophets and the writings, right? By the way, that is a way of referring to the whole Old Testament. The Old Testament is divided into the law, the prophets, and the writings. And so when Jesus says that, he says, all the law, the prophets, and the writings, they are about me. And he explains them to his disciples. All that he needed to know concerning his work and mission was already there. He knew because he knew the scriptures. Now, there's a sense in which that is unique for Jesus, obviously, because the scriptures are about him. But there's another sense in which that is not at all unique. How do you know the will of God for your life? By searching the scriptures. It's in the scriptures where God tells us not only what we are to believe concerning him, but what our duty is before him. If we want to know how we ought to uh, believe and how we ought to live, we must be people of the word. And that word is all about Christ. And so in accordance with the scriptures, Jesus then, without any threat of violence, without rallying his disciples to draw their swords, even telling them to put them away, And without rallying the armies of heaven, he simply submits to be taken into the custody of these lawless men so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And then, as if to prove the point, the very last sentence is a fulfillment of scripture. Then all the disciples left and fled. Strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. We saw that last week in Zechariah. Just as he had predicted that by the end of this night he would be left alone and like a sheep led to slaughter. The scripture said pull, and Jesus, Jesus pulled. And he opened the door leading to his death. As we reflect on this passage, as we think about all of the many things it teaches us, I think there's a few things we would do well to consider. First, I think there's a sense in which the betrayal of Judas and that violent sign should serve as a warning to us. Judas Judas had been a follower of Jesus. Judas had had a front row seat to the powers of the age to come on display in the ministry of Jesus. But Judas also had at the same time this persistent love for the things of the world. He had a higher love. For Judas, that was the love of money. And because of money, he was ready and willing to desert Christ. But you could replace money with any other love, any other desire, any other thing that takes precedence over Christ and his kingdom. Whatever it may be, That's the way that apostasy happens. And it doesn't usually happen all at once. It usually happens subtly and over time. 
It was the same thing that Paul said of Demas. Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me. You could almost insert Judas's name there. Judas, in love with the present world, has deserted me. And I'm old enough now that I've had more than one friend and colleague who have deserted Christ for other loves. It's easy to point at Judas and to say, what a traitor. But he didn't just become a traitor overnight. Something was growing in his heart. Jesus knew he was a traitor long before Judas knew he was a traitor. Jesus knew who it was who would betray him. But it's not until much later in the story that Judas actually becomes what he is. Here's all I'm saying, is that we need to watch our hearts. We need to guard our hearts with all vigilance, for from them flow the springs of life. We need to be honest about the things that we love, and where there are things that we love that are higher than Christ to of those things. We'll find them constantly. But you pull the weed before it grows into a tree. And if you pull it when it's young, it's much easier to uproot. And so I think there's a warning for us here. Without, without prejudicing anything about the perseverance of the saints or God's preservation of them, right? Uh, Jesus says he will lose none of those whom the Father has given to him. And so we can walk with faith and security, but we should also ask that introspective question, is it I, Lord? If Judas's betrayal is a warning to us, I think Peter's confession and his violent defense of Christ should be a correction for us. To remember that Jesus doesn't need our defending, that all of heaven is at his disposal, And that we should remember, constantly remember, that the kingdom of God is not advanced in the ways that the kingdoms of this world are. It is not advanced through revolutionary tactics. It is not advanced through political power. It is not advanced through cultural influence. I think that's one of the ones that the present church needs to hear, maybe more than any. It's advanced through the message of the cross. Please don't misunderstand me. There is nothing wrong with being engaged in our communities, being involved in the political process, exercising influence in good ways. We should be doing all of those things, but we should not pretend that any of those things constitute the mission of the church. The mission of the church is to advance the kingdom of Christ by making disciples through the message of the cross. And that message of the cross is not just something that we speak about, but something that we come to embody. What do I mean by that? That is something that Peter, on the other side of the resurrection, on the other side of the sending of the Spirit, would have to come to learn. This same Peter who drew out his sword that night in the garden would later draw out his pen, and he would write to the church, and this is what he would write. He would say about suffering, 
To this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to one who judges justly. I, there's something marvelous about this to me, that Peter is able to look back at that night and to have this complete change of his thinking. That he would now look back at that night and at Christ's example on that night to see an example for himself and for the church. How the church should conduct itself in a world of violence. That just as Jesus was entrusting himself to him who judges justly, so we should entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. To remember that there are all kinds of situations where we will be wronged and mistreated and even betrayed. And that our goal in those situations is not to show that we have more power. But that we are willing to rest in the power of God. And to remember that his ways are actually above our ways. And his thoughts are above our thoughts. And the cross is one of those thoughts that is always above our thoughts. And yet Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Nowhere is this reality more perfectly proved than in the seeming foolishness of the cross. In the seeming weakness of a Savior who suffers for sinners and calls us to follow. Amen. Let's pray. O oh Lord, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us, but one who has been made like us in every way except without sin. One who has endured all the, the, the suffering and misery of the effects of the fall, even the bitterness of betrayal. And yet, Lord, you, when you were reviled, you did not revile in return. Uh, when you were violently taken, you did not respond with violence, but you entrusted your soul to a faithful creator who judges righteously. And you did this for us, Lord, in order that we might gain an entrance into your heavenly kingdom. But Lord, would you help us to remember that that heavenly kingdom is not advanced by the sword or by political process or by uh, cultural things, but it is advanced through the message of the cross. And so Lord, we pray that you would not only help us to have that message of the cross upon our lips, but that you would help us to have the message of the cross shape our lives and our living so that others might actually see the gospel on display in the way that we respond. And Lord, forgive us because this is hard. It is contrary to all of our impulses. Uh, we, we want to lash out. We want to respond in kind. We do not enjoy turning the other cheek. And so forgive us our sins for Christ's sake, in whose name we pray. Amen. May the Lord give us all of our children.
in due time. Amen? Amen. It's always a wonderful thing when someone gets to come and to sit at this table for the first time and to have Jesus hand them bread and wine and say to them, this is my body. I've given it for you. This is my blood. I've poured it out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Uh, And that is what happens in this sacramental meal, that Jesus reminds us of what he has given on our behalf in order that we might be delivered from sin, in order that we might be reconciled to the Father, in order that we might have this communion with him and with one another. Uh, And so today, as we come to this table, let's come with an appreciation and a value for Christ and all of his benefits to us. And let's examine our hearts. Let's do that work of examination. Uh, But let's, as we say, is it I? Let's say, is it I, Lord? Let us submit ourselves to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This meal is for those who own Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their Savior. Uh, This is not a meal for those who are rebelling against Christ. It's not a meal for those who do not have faith in Christ. Uh, It is, however, a meal for sinners who are repentant of their sins and trusting in Christ. And if that is you today, if you have professed your faith uh, and you are a member of a church where the gospel is faithfully proclaimed uh, and you are uh, baptized and and seeking to walk in his ways to the glory of his name, owning your faults but confessing your sins and coming in repentance— then you are welcome to come to this meal and find assurance of faith. Uh, But if those things are not true of you, let me just simply ask you to let these elements pass today. But do not let Christ pass. He is here to be received in faith. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would take these elements and set them apart for this holy use. Uh, Lord, as we come to this table, Lord, we know that we do not deserve to be here. Uh, We do not deserve a seat at this table, and yet you invite us and call us to come, uh, and not to gather up the crumbs from under the table like a dog might, but to come as children, and to pull up our chairs, and to have uh, you extend your hands to us with bread and wine to fill us and to be satisfied. And so, Lord, we, we pray then that you would take these ordinary elements now, that you would set them apart for this holy purpose, uh, as we receive them in faith, we say it in Jesus' name. Amen.